This is a classic because love and money have a forever challenging relationship with one another. This is a classic because no one wants to marry their cousin. (laughs) (laughs) That one's just silly. This is our history. This is our legacy. Hello and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater Podcast. We're your hosts. Mary Candler, founder and former artistic director of Hedgepig and current curator for Expand the Canon. And me, Emily Lyon, current artistic director of Hedgepig and a curator for Expand the Canon. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. Today's episode is about forging the truth by Young Jiang. Disclaimer, just before we get any further into this podcast, neither Emily nor I speak any Chinese whatsoever. Nope. We preemptively apologize for our poor pronunciation. We have done our best on Google, but here you go. Speaking of Google and other lovely websites, um, if you go to expandthecanon.com, here is our pitch for this piece. If you're looking for a clever class comedy by a Noel Coward contemporary, consider this zany play that takes on tradition, marriage, and capitalism. The spoiled but sweet Wan Ru has a watchful father who she is desperate to avoid when sneaking in her hot new boyfriend. Mm. In this story, family is often run like a business, and financial prospects are important across the board. But not everyone is clearly showing their cards. Wanru's dad keeps trying to run her love life like a business, Wanhua gets the world's worst proposal, and everyone's trying to keep up the face of tradition, even if it's just a show. Chinese comedic playwright Yang Zhang brings light, love, and clarity to this relatable family situation. It's a super fun play. I was the first person to read this on the curating team, and I immediately like just took to the sense of humor it's written in the 40s and it takes place in the 40s in shanghai and i think because it's that like sort of metropolitan feel and this very like fancy family i really saw it in almost a like 1960s early 1960 like Mad Men kind of vibe and just (laughs) really took to the physical comedy the exaggerated family relationships just how much fun you can have especially in act one of this play um so i'm so excited that we get to jump in and talk about it i mean i just think that right now in pop culture we're kind of obsessed with looking at dramas and comedies about the one percent because we're Mm. like annoyed about them in our real life and (laughs) this play also kind of jumps on that it feels very contemporary in that way it's like well if you want a drama watch succession and if you want a comedy watch forging the truth yeah there's a lot of resonance with almost a, like a Merry Wives in a way, like trying to get Anne Page married off. There's a resonance with some of those other like marriage comedies of, of the 1600s, 1700s. So it is really in the world of that like classic marriage play, but at the same time has this thread of 
economics and how marriage is ultimately a pursuit of wealth and legacy and ensuring your family survives and can do well. But this play especially walks that line between like that contemporary jab at the 1% and also like how do you navigate being poor? How do you become like a marriageable, how do you feel like an attractive commodity when you don't have the cash coming in? And still hearkening back in many ways to those classic setups of, of marriage plays. And it's also like a classic marriage play with such self-awareness about feminist movements. <laughs> mm. Oh, so true. There is such a great conversation between Lady Zong and um, her husband where... Um... <laughs> where she's like, well, you know, women's liberation, you know about that, you know, working and being the same as men. And he's like, I know, we tried that. It didn't work. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely ended that one in the 40s. We, we finished. We finished that experiment. I do, though, want to also highlight, like, how much physical comedy I think this play can hold and I don't know if you read that if you like get that super clearly on your first read there's one scene where Wan Ru the daughter of the sort of one percent family the Zhongs she is like popping up in a window and like doing sort of this mime miming to her, her like hot boyfriend Zhou De Zhang and that's very silly and so well described and I remember reading this play and just like loving watching this scene in my head but I really think there's so many more opportunities for the contrast in the two family setups all the kinds of levels of respect and what that looks like and how much people respect or show respect to others I think there's a huge amount of possibility for physical comedy in this play oh my gosh and also to me the one that stood out when I first read it was there's like a Potential for a whole stage combat scene involving a broom with the housekeeper. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that one's good. And at the end, the whole wedding ceremony is almost like a lotsy. In it a is way. hilarious. It's a yeah. physical goof bit that also is like very kind of intense it's that's a really interesting line to walk for for an ensemble i will say if you get deep into google there is a real bootleg copy of this play from the 2007 revival on the internet in chinese fair but um you know if you speak chinese super and if you don't watch it for the physical comedy oh my god wait okay will you send me that because i'm actually super excited <laughs> legacy so Emily, what is this play even about? We know it's about marriage and we've like thrown around a lot of ideas about this play. But like what happens here? What happens in Forging the Truth? Okay, so it's Shanghai, 1944. And we open on the Zhang family. They're a wealthy family. And we first meet Wan Ru, their daughter, who is trying to hide a boy. He's coming over and she's trying to avoid her dad, Jiang Fu, because he does not like this boy. However, his his name is Zhou Dajang and Wanru is super into Dajang. It's definitely one of those like, no, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. No, you hang up first situations. The most. And a lot of that is driven by Wanru for sure. But Dajang is super charming. He's, he's absolutely willing to play along. And he's also willing to play along with her dad. So he comes over thinking the dad's gone, but alas, he's sort of trapped there. 
and he Dajong is flattering Zhang Fu. Dajong is flattering the dad and name dropping all kinds of like fancy important friends to get him to like him and approve of their marriage. But unfortunately, Zhang Fu is still suspicious. He's a businessman and with his daughter as with like everything he's thinking in terms of business and he doesn't want to waste his daughter on a bad investment which is such a harsh way to think of that but that's his only kid despite there being two other young people in the house so Wanru is his only daughter and he really wants to make sure that she's happy and secure which I get you know good dad I mean good dad right he really wants her to be in a good situation it's too bad that she's not allowed to have a voice in that but okay truth so as I mentioned, under the same roof, living with the Zhangs, are Wanru's two cousins, who are not quite as wealthy. On her father's side, Yan Hua, who is a smart girl. She's working, and she's always asked to fetch his slippers, which is really cool. Nothing like a feminist moment of, hey, young lady, get my slippers. And on Wanru's mother's side is Feng Guangzhu, who is very scholarly. He loves to read and he is poor, but he comes from a very good family. Wanru's dad, Jianfu, is like shipping Wanru with Feng Guangzhu a lot because of his good breeding. And he feels very comfortable with this young nerdy guy. Wanru kind of unsurprisingly is not super into it. However, luckily for Wanru, her mom does think Dajong, who she likes, is sweet and cute because truth. Truth. And her mom is kind of great. Her mom is like, are you sure that my nerdy cousin <laughs> is right for our perfect daughter? Are you sure? So we've got Wanru. Wanru is super into Dajong who is courting her back. Then we've got, right, her cousin, Feng Guangzhu, and he is into her other cousin, Yan Hua. Um, so there's sort of a love square happening. Yeah, it's like, do, can we even call it a, it's like there's an arrangement triangle? <laughs> yeah, like awkward parallelogram. I don't know. Unfortunately for Feng Guangzhu, both of his potential partners, not feeling it. Not feeling it. I mean, he's a sweet guy, but he approaches everything like it's science, from like sewing on his own shirt buttons to declarations of love. The hot boyfriend candidate, Zhou Dajong, is telling Wanru's parents how he's really risen up the ranks in the insurance company he's working at, and he's really holding court for her dad while we get this super goofy comedic scene of Wanru popping up in a window trying to get him to like run away and leave with her <laughs> so they can be together and be alone. She's like in the window gesturing and hiding and ducking down. It's almost like noises off-esque in this first act. And unfortunately her dad kind of catches them. Oh no! So Xiang Fu, her dad, tries to trick Dajong into going home and leaving with him to go home. But unfortunately, he is outsmarted. Da Zhang is super clever and instead gets rid of the dad and returns. Yan Hua, Wanru's cousin, is the only person who's smart enough to anticipate that Da Zhang is that clever and is going to come back. So Yan Hua tells Wanru to come back downstairs. Because she's uh, been upstairs just like sobbing because she missed her boyfriend when he came over. Oh no. Yeah. And... Yanhua, who's very much more practical. She's she's very practical and clever. She tells she brings Wanru downstairs and Dajong and Yanhua have 
a little short scene together. He is kind of impressed that Yanhua like could anticipate what he was up to and they kind of tease each other. And after Yanhua leaves, Da Zhang says, can a man ever get what he desires? Ooh, twist. Yeah, intrigue. But Wanru comes back in and they have this like very cheesy, cute, no, you hang up conversation. Her dad, again, does not approve. And Dajong is like really kind of pressing her on some of the more technical aspects of like, well, but if he doesn't approve, how will we get married? Like, do you have some money that we could run away with? He's like worried that they'll be destitute. Truly, this is such a scene of like a spoiled little rich girl who doesn't understand how much privilege she's had too. of like, he's like, no, but seriously, if your dad disowns you, what will your life be like? Can we do that? And she's like, whatever. I like don't need this anyways. Like, it'll be fine. And he's like, no, 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 no. But like, can we like actually stop and think deeply about this? But she doesn't care. She's just into him. He has given her a ring as sort of a like agreement, cute flirting thing, but they're not like officially engaged. So that's act one. Okay. So act two is in a very different space. So we go to Zhou Dajong's family home, which is not necessarily what he was representing to Wanru's dad. It's a little bit of a shocker, a little bit of a shocker when we see the truth here. He lives in a really tiny apartment over a small grocery store, and that's his brother-in-law's home and brother-in-law's store. The Zhou family has a lot of debts and the family is really tense because of it. The whole family is living with his sister who got married to her cousin. And by the way, this family tree is going to get really crazy. We will link in the comments to the family tree that we built because it's going to help you. Basically what you need to know is they're all living with his sister, which is not usually the custom. Technically, Dajang wants to live on his own and be married. So here he was lying to the Zhang family. And now he's lying to his own family, to his mom, who is making him this like meatless, spoiled flour pasta. Mm. He's like, oh, I already ate. Like they love me. They're so excited. They definitely want me to marry into the family, which is totally not true. So he's lying on both sides of his face. Or maybe he's just calling it in. He's like, I am secreting this in. This is going to work out. See, we yeah. can spin this. We can reframe this. Definitely being um, aspirational. He's selling this image of like, he's going to marry rich and they'll be totally taken care of. Don't worry about it, mom. And his uncle comes in and is like trying to get him to invest in business stuff. And it's very clear that Dajong is like, I don't have any money to invest right now. It's all coming. It's coming. It's coming later. So yeah, it's a very different setup than was sort of proposed to us and to Wanru in Act 1. You know, in reading this, you have to really readjust your perception of Dajong. Because truly, you think he's one person, and then you get to Act 2 and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Everything I just invested in was not true. It's a little catch me if you can He's yes. really good at yes. spinning it. I really believed him in the first act. And, you know, something seemed off, but I didn't know what. Act two was a big, like, shift for me. of like, what? Oh my god, no. Which is totally the experience you want. So, the end of act two, he kind of says to his mom that he's going to move in with Wanru, but he's not, like, bringing the whole family. And his mom is devastated. 
that he's like leaving her behind. She really loves her son, but she's like way too prideful to like demand to move into their house. So she's like, okay, great. I'm just going to go over there to the Zhang's and we're going to talk about this. And Zhang's like, no, 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 no. We cannot, you cannot do that. Also no, because the plan. I'm lying to life. everyone. So he says, he's like, you shouldn't go over there until I buy you new shoes. If you're going to go meet your future in-laws, you should have some new shoes. So she's like, fine, I will wait. So now like the clock is ticking on Dajong figuring this out. And getting new shoes for his mom. <laughs> Which he's super not going to do. So act three, we bop back to the Zhang home, Wan Ru's house, back to luxury. Guangzhou is warning Wan Ru. He's like, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I kind of think Dajong is in love with our other cousin, Yan Hua. I will say when I read this, I was like, whoa, what? That came out of left field. I even didn't take it that seriously. Wan Ru laughs it off, kind of like I did, and is like, no, you're just being jealous and anxious because you're into Yanhua. That doesn't mean everyone's into Yanhua. Like, chill. Wan Ru sends Yanhua to go talk to Guangzhou, who, again, is into Yanhua. Was that confusing at all? Yeah, yep. What? What are we saying? Right, so Wanru is like, instead of worrying about my love life, why don't you get your love life in order and actually have a conversation about Yanhua? Stop talking about her, start talking to her. Yeah. So he is nervous and doesn't know exactly what he's going to say, but when Yanhua gets there, he starts this, like, five-point treatise on the idea of marriage, and it is, like, the most painful attempt at a proposal that is just like from an entirely analytic point of view. Yeah, John Schneider, who read uh, Fang Guangzhou in the festival, um, the Expand the Canon Festival reading, was so funny. This is really a great scene um, for a, a smart, dry comic actor. Yanhua uh, does not say yes, you may be surprised, turns down this super awkward proposal um, and says she can never love Guangzhou. And you know what? He was right. Yanhua is in love with Dajong. Oh my gosh! She's in love with Dajong, who is into Wanru, you know, like, and she too is bitter about her fortunes and um, not having the same kind of inheritance. She was basically like kind of a abandoned by her dad to and dropped off at her uncle's house here. She is kind of like this Cinderella character in the house where she is family, but somehow is very much a different class within the house. Ooh. And is again, you said the slippers thing. All she's doing is running little errands. So Yanhua is in fact in love with Dajang and is like charmed by him and his wealth and his abilities and his cleverness. So she thinks of a plan. She knows that one... Wanru wants to elope with Dajang. She's thinking it's going to happen soon. So she convinces Guangzhou to leave early for a family wedding out of town and take Wanru with him. Can't elope if you're not there. So he agrees. Her dad agrees. Like, yes, get her out of the house so he can't come back. That that hot boyfriend man. And Wanru is like stressed at suddenly being like sent away because Dajang is supposed to come over. So she says, Yanhua, Yanhua, will you give, give him a message for me? And Yanhua, being smart and scheming, says, sure, but to prove that it's really you, give me your ring that he gave you. And she does. The house is now empty. Yanhua's gotten rid of all of them. And Dajang comes over. Yanhua, in sending this message from Wanru, implies basically that Wanru and Guangzhou the other cousin, 
are kind of running off together and getting married, and she and Wanru is returning his the ring to Dajang, which is not at all what's happening, but she very slyly kind of like fudges that detail. Now both of their supposed fiancés are gone. Ooh, what could happen? Dajang and Yanhua start flirting and it ramps up real fast and they kind of like almost dare each other to be in love with each other and run away and they agree. So they're going to run away tomorrow together in the morning and they split up to make arrangements, but they both seem really happy about it. Hey, maybe it was like the true love that should have been. Let's find out what happens next. Here we go, rocketing into Act 4. We're back in, it's like a, a week later, I think. And Wanru and Guangzhou have returned from the wedding. And Wanru is like, you know, at peace that Dajong has probably run off with Yanhua. Like, it is fairly clear that that's what happened. And she's chill about it. Wanru is like, okay, if that's what he wanted. You know, I think she actually has a surprising sense of self-worth in this moment. Who is not chill about it is Dajong's mom. She comes busting into the living room, super mad at this family for, like, stealing her son away and hiding him from her. Also, not wearing new shoes. Not wearing new shoes. And the two moms finally meet and, like, don't understand each other. Mrs. Zhang, Wanru's mom, is, like, does not... Not that she doesn't care about Dajang, but she's clearly, like, not hiding him anywhere. And Dajang's mom is, like, trying to search the house. Um, he stole some of her jewelry and left the a note that he was going to go get married. She's like, I know that he's here. So Zhang Fu, Wanru's dad, is like, well, your son stole our niece. And so now they're just, like, fighting it out. So Yanhua's father, the one who, like, dropped her off to live here finally shows up. He doesn't seem bothered about her disappearance or about her marriage. He is really casual. And in our reading, Ariel Estrada totally, totally played him as a stoned dude. And it makes sense. He's just super chill. Yanhua's dad is not concerned. However, Wanru's dad is because they're family, they're connected. And if it word gets out that Yanhua and women of their family are easy, right? They run off without being officially married. That is not going to help Wanru's prospects. So if his brother is fine with this marriage, Jean Fu is like, okay, we need to track them down and we need to get them married legitimately. It reminds me a little bit of Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice. One of those we have to, for the rest of the daughters, we need to make sure this is legit. It's really interesting. I want to come back to this because there's been a lot of folks that have said that Yang Jang is most similar to Jane Austen as mm. like a Western writer, but I want to put a pin in that. Let's come back to it. That is fascinating. Okay, pin in that. Yanhua's dad is not planning to give her any sort of dowry. They're broke, they're already broke, and they're going to continue to be broke. So a letter arrives from Yanhua that they're going to arrive at the train station at 5 p.m. Since Dajong's mom is freaking out and really excited to, to be a mother-in-law and to have him back home, Fu decides, okay, great, everybody go prepare to grab them at the train station and shuttle them over to Zhou Dajong's house. They're going to set up a wedding at his tiny apartment. And at least uh, in at least Zhang Fu is going to provide the catering. And so that's our setup for Act 5. This is like the ad hoc wedding ceremony. It's dirty and cramped and everyone scoots in and the couple is grabbed from a taxi and brought in to get married without like warning. And Yan Hua is like 
kind of protesting this, which makes sense. But nonetheless, they officiate the wedding. Everybody signs their seals. Like, they force them to bow at the appropriate times. And pretty much right after that, like, Wan Wanru and Yanhua's family just, like, leaves. Wipe their hands clean of the whole business, even before the catering comes. They don't need to eat dinner. They're good. And now Yanhua is the responsibility of Da Zhang and his family. Yanhua, who has not been to his house and seen how much of a cramped apartment this is, is really starting to get how not accurate those descriptions of his life were. Da Zhang, who presumably in this scene has figured out that Guangzhou and Wanru weren't in fact married and did not run off together, is kind of impressed at Yanhua's ability to manipulate situations. So they're both like newly revealed in their truths to each other. <laughs> it could kind of go this moment of like the graduate and like be sort of a dark thing. But Da Zhang is, as we've seen through the whole play, a very positive person. And he's like, well, you know, what couldn't we do, the two of us? My, you know, with my positiveness and my willing to pitch basically anyone and your ability to manipulate situations, I think we really could, we could really make our way. The ending is happy, but also hopeful? a little tense. It's hopeful. Like, like a hopeful con artist, like two potential new con artists. So it's like dark, but hopeful. I don't know. Like, yeah. How you want to leave that last moment, I think is really kind of up to you. I agree. I think it's really open to interpretation and it could be hilarious and it could be quite dark. Legacy. So who was the woman behind this really um, hilarious play with an ambiguous ending? Yang Jiang is a Chinese author and playwright. One thing that really struck me when I was doing research about her is that she was a deeply beloved figure. In China, her writings, but particularly her novels, her books, are really celebrated. When she passed away in 2016. It's so crazy. Wow. At the age so of 104. 104. What was she eating? There were a number of really beautiful obituaries, both in the People's Daily, which is the official newspaper for the Communist Party, and in the New York Times, there were really lovely obituaries for Yan Tiang. That gives you a sense of her impact. But again, she is mostly known for her novels. Let's backtrack a little bit. Yang Tiang was born in Beijing in 1911. She was born to a decently wealthy family, and she was very well educated. She graduated from college at 21 in the 1930s, and she enrolled in graduate school, which was really good timing because China only opened its education system to women in 1907. Wow. So she got right in there. There was the end of the family dynasties. It was a big time of change, and she was able to get a wonderful education. She enrolled in graduate school, and that's where she met her husband, Qian Zongshu. He is also a famous writer and thinker and scholar. So they meet in graduate school, and they actually go on to study together in England at Oxford. They study together at the Sorbonne in France and Paris. They're just two smart cookies who fell in love. And they move back to Shanghai in the late 1930s. In the 40s is when she writes all four of her plays. So she writes Forging the Truth, obviously this play, Heart's Desire, Sporting with the World, 
and windswept blossoms. Fun fact, this woman has incredibly high standards. There is no manuscript available for sporting with the world because she just didn't think it was that exceptional and she destroyed the only copy. <gasps> what? Wait, where did you read that? In an interview with her right before she died. So oh they were like, God. whatever happened? Why is this not in existence? And she said, because I destroyed it. But I also appreciate a woman that says, like, I know where my standards are and this one work didn't meet it, so I don't want it to live forward in legacy. She is crafting her own legacy. And apparently I think that one was a farce. Yes. If these two, if Forging the Truth and Heart's Desire are comedies and that's a farce, like, I would be so curious to see the level of, like, physical comedy and silliness. Yeah, and Windswept Blossoms, though, is a, is a drama. If you have a translation of any of these plays or you know someone who's highly motivated to translate them, please do send them our way. Speaking of translations, one of the reasons um, that Yang Jiang became a really well-known writer is that she did like the definitive translation in Chinese of Don Quixote. She was dissatisfied with all of the versions that had been translated. And she was like, no, no. I I don't think either of them are good enough. Any of them are good enough. So she learned Spanish. She learned Spanish so she could go back and read the original text of Don Quixote and translate it herself. But yeah, so she really does have high standards and she's very thoughtful. This translation of Don Quixote is like awarded and lauded hugely. But there's actually kind of an interesting story in the middle of her life about what happens when she's writing it. So she's beginning this project to translate this massive book that also she's learned an entire language to do. The Cultural Revolution in the 60s in China is starts to happen. So she's written like, she's translated I think seven-eighths of Don Quixote and the Red Guard comes in and, and takes it from her. So they take her translation, all of her work of this incredible translation is just like removed. And she and her husband, they're both intellectuals, they're sent to a labor camp for a decade. She writes a book about that experience as well. And that's what made her name as an author in the 1980s. At 70 years old, her take on it was was often much more in the in the sort of small solitary moments um, and much more sort of soberly described in a lot of ways. She goes through this whole crazy decade and later the translation of Don Quixote is handed back to her. It's returned to her and she finishes the project. It gets published and she gets many awards. Also, if you're sick of those like 30 under 30 lists, she also then in 2003 wrote another book that became a bestseller at 92. Oh my gosh. I, okay. So instead of 30 under 30, it is one over 90. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Give me, give me the 90 over 90 that I need to know about. Right. Sadly, this bestseller called We Three is about her life with her husband and her daughter, both of whom had passed away in the nineties. Her daughter died of cancer and her husband died the, the year after that. I'm not sure if this is true or if this is just a rumor, but I read that um, she kept the death of her daughter away from her husband who was dying because she knew it was like his last, you know, few months and that would be so painful for him. Oh my God. Yeah. Can you imagine like holding all of that, you know, as a vessel inside of you, but knowing that it's like a gift not to give that information on? <sighs> yeah. 
So in summary, Yang Jiang, she wrote, she was hugely prolific. She wrote a ton of prose works, nine novels, four plays, a bunch of essay collections. Um, and that, that bestseller, We Three, is one of the reasons that she's really well, she was really well known at her death in 2016. She's kind of a badass, author. So we put a pin in this conversation around um, the comparison of Yang Jiang and Jane Austen. And I've seen this pop up on the internet a lot. And hilariously, <laughs> that there's an interview with Yang Jiang before she died, where someone says, hey, a lot of people have been comparing you to Jane Austen. Like if there was a kind of Western counterpart, it would be Jane Austen. Do you agree? And she just says, no. But I was really puzzled by this. And then it was because I, you know, I, I think of Jane Austen so clearly as being, you know, many, many years earlier in such a different society. And just like the tone of those books feels very different in a way. But then the fact that you brought up Jane Austen as we were doing this podcast and I was like, oh, maybe it's true. Maybe there is something that I'm just not seeing here. So what do you think, Emily? Is she the Jane Austen of China? I mean, look, I don't feel like I know enough other Chinese writers to be like, this is who I think is the Jane Austen of China. Um, I would say, ultimately, I don't I don't think they're super analogous. But of course, they're dealing with, like, women and marriage, at least in this play. It's, you know, the need to, to marry women well, and how that is... Uh, comes with so many trials and tribulations for them and everyone around them, I think is real. But is Jane Austen the only person that wrote about that? Uh, no. So I kind of think that that's a, we have a limited vocabulary of women writers. And I think that right. is further excuse to expand the canon. And now a very terrible proposal scene where Guangzhou, the intellectual, gets up the nerve to ask Yan Hua to marry him. Guangzhou here is played by David Huin and Yan Hua by Dorothea Gloria. Yan Hua, I have something to discuss with you. What about? So serious. You can't call it a serious matter. From the overall perspective of society, it's a very insignificant matter. But to the one or two people involved, however... It is a matter that concerns lifelong happiness, so one can't not see it as a very important matter, and one can't not discuss it very thoroughly. Please, tell me. I'll lay the whole matter out very clearly for you. There are five points. The first point is, that is to say, the basic issue is whether or not this is worth discussing at all. But what we also have to carefully examine is, that is to say, the second point, that is, the problem itself. In other words, what we have to analyze now is, what is the issue? What? Nowadays, some people oppose marriage. What we have to discuss is, should a person get married or not? Some people say that the family is the root of all greed and a great many social ills, and that exhortation and so forth starts with marriage. So, is marriage a good thing or not? What? Of course it is obvious, so I might as well be frank. All men and women, no matter who they may be, need to get married. Enough. I don't need to get married. If I ever fall in love with a man, I'll just run away with him. Yan Hua, we are merely discussing the issue. 
and I'm not finished. What I just said was the second point. Let me first finish giving you the overall outline, and then we can discuss the individual points one at a time. The third point is, why haven't I gotten married yet? There are several reasons for this, and I'll tell you them gradually. The fourth point is, can I get married right now? And there are two subpoints here. One is your perspective on this, and the other is my perspective on this. The fifth point is the union of these two points. That is to say, that is to say, I ought to marry you. Oh, Yanhua, I have never dared to utter that sentence. I always thought that this, this, this thing called love is a thing that has to be painstakingly fostered. It can't be forced. That's why I have patiently waited for you. One year, two years, three years, even as much as five or six years so that it could grow naturally. This brings us back to my third point. That won't be necessary. Why you haven't gotten married? That's your business. Can you get married now? That's also your business. Can I get married now? That's none of your business. And the conclusion is, in 70 years, 80 years, or a hundred years, that marvelous thing of yours will never grow in my heart and tell me to marry you. Yanhua! Oh, how did I offend her this time? Ugh, oh, women, women! Mysterious. If I did marry you, it would only be because I admire university students and have never had the good fortune of attending classes and hearing lectures. And that way I could have private lessons with you. This, this simply, it's not funny. Yet it's not upsetting. She, you have more to say? My dear Kuang Tzu, please pardon me. What? I am apologizing to you. I don't know what came over me just now to make me behave so rudely. I shouldn't have behaved that way. <sighs> I deserved it. At first, I... When I came in, I knew what your intentions were, and I was prepared to give my consent. Yanhua, you made me suffer at first on purpose. Only to now make me happy. That's not what I... Dear Kuang Tzu, I know you are devoted to me, but I simply can't say yes. I have tried with all my might to make myself love you, but I can't. No matter what, I just can't. I ought to love you. All these years, besides you, who else ever looked after me? When my dad got remarried, he forgot all about me. Third uncle and aunt don't really pay much attention to me. You were the only one who was ever concerned about me, who helped me, who took care of me. Is it that I don't know how to be grateful? But, Yanhua, gratitude isn't the same thing as love. I certainly don't approve of a woman sacrificing herself out of gratitude. Now that I think about it, in order to express my gratitude and repay you, I actually ought to promise not to marry you. You know my disposition. Whoever marries me will have plenty to put up with. Oh, Yanhua, you do have a short temper. 
Exactly. I'm like a huge explosive. There is gunpowder stored in my heart, wrapped in several layers of thick paper, bored to frustration, just waiting to be ignited. Pow, pow! I'd explode in an instant and fly up, my whole body burnt to cinders. Only then would I be relaxed and carefree. How sorry I feel for you. But you would be able to put up with me. I guarantee I would abuse you, trample all over you, bully you. The kinder you are, the more I would torment you. I wouldn't make a good wife. I originally thought I could try hard to become a good wife, but I couldn't. I couldn't love you. Because you love someone else. Thanks so much, Dorothea and David. Dum, dum. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Learn more about this play and others at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit the share button and forward it along to a friend, colleague, or professor. For information on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedgepig Ensemble Theater with an R-E. Facebook. Slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. No R-E needed. Ha-ha! You can also support this effort by donating at the link in the comments below. Again, I'm Mary Candler. And I'm Emily Lyon. Thanks for joining us.